We are continuing our series in the Holy Spirit uh, today. This week's and next week's lesson should be kind of thought of as one big lesson. Uh, so it's the Holy Spirit in the New Testament with regards to the Lord Jesus. Uh, so today, I'm just going to orient you to the outline. They're out there if you need one. They're out there if you don't need one also. Um, we've got... We're going to review a little bit from last week, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, Revelation of Christ. We're going to look at the relationship between the Lord Jesus on earth, the incarnated Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at Jesus' incarnation and the Holy Spirit in the, in the life and uh, up to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, his baptism and, and temptation. So... That's what we're looking at. Our questions to consider this morning, let's be thinking about this. Uh, what is the most important work of the Holy Spirit and why? There are uh, several possible correct answers to that question. Um, just make sure you justify it. Why do you think that's the most important work? And then what is different about the Holy Spirit between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Be thinking about those. I'll open us in prayer, and then we'll we'll talk about that. Let's pray. Great Triune God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. Thank you that you are Triune, your Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have brought us here this morning to consider your Word and the person of the Holy Spirit and His work in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would open our eyes and our ears, help us evolve wonderful things from your law, that we might learn more about you, about ourselves, learn more uh, clearly how to worship you and uh, what we should do in response to who you are. I pray that you would be with us and that everything that we say and think would be glorifying to you and edifying to ourselves and each other. Probably these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what do you think? What's the most important work of the Holy Spirit? Conviction. Okay, conviction of sin. Why do you say that? Well, I was thinking about the orders of Lewis, and I feel like, although regeneration is a huge one, mm-hmm. I feel like conviction of sin would precede regeneration. Okay. Um, so it's, it's more important because it's prior to regeneration. I, well, I, there can be no, I don't think there can be regeneration without conviction of sin. Yeah, okay. So regeneration depends upon conviction of sin? I think so. I okay. could be wrong. <laughs> I don't think you're wrong. Any other answers? Most important work of the Holy Spirit? This is generally, right? Not, uh, you, you could answer in, in the life of, of the believer. You could answer something else. But the Holy Spirit does other things besides work in the life of believers, right? So it could be open. It, it is an open question, so what do you think? Well, also, sorry, also conviction of sin applies to the believer as well, so it precedes regeneration. And yeah. It also takes place in the life of the believer and mm-hmm. their uh, process of sanctification. Yeah, definitely. Progressive sanctification, uh, conviction of sin is very important in there. Yes? Uh, I think uh, at least the first thing because uh, he proceeds, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Mm-hmm. So I think the very first thing that he's going to do is to you know, carry out the will of the Father mm-hmm. for his glory, for the Father's glory. So whatever that is, whether it be to work in the lives of the elect or whatever it may be, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's going to one has to carry out the will of the Father. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, carrying out the will of the Father, uh, the Spirit glorifies the Son, right? The Son glorifies the Father. Um, we do know, I think uh, Harry uh, brought it up last week, The there's a Latin phrase, I don't know, it in Latin, but the, the external works of the Trinity are indivisible, right? So, um, yes, the Holy Spirit has a will that is separate from the will of the Father and the Son. It's not 
different from in the sense that the Holy Spirit wills something against the will of the Father or the will of the Son, but because the three persons of the Trinity are unique persons, they have unique wills, right? That was, thinking back to the first week, that was one of the proofs that the Holy Spirit is a person, uh, not just a thing, not just a force, that the Holy Spirit has a will. But yes, the Holy Spirit um, carries out the will of the Father. Good. What else? Other most important works of the Holy it's Spirit. God continuing to dwell among his people. Mm. So we had the Ark of the Covenant first in the tabernacle, and that was God dwelling among his people, mm-hmm. and then the temple, and now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Mike, Pastor Mock talked last week about um, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in, in presence, right? So yeah, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the pillar of cloud and, and the pillar of fire. Um, God dwelling with his people. And now we all have, if we are believers, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Why do you think that's the most important work of the Holy Spirit? I think it, yeah, I think it overarches everything that's already been said. That, like, mm-hmm. That's just a general overarching thing that encompasses yeah. everything that we've already said. Yeah. Yeah, and then, I mean, you, you can even take that back right before time began. The Holy Spirit, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they were indwelling each other, that uh, perichoresis, mutual indwelling. And then at creation, the Holy Spirit fills the, the Holy of Holies. Is that, that word that uh, Pastor Mark wrote on the board? Indoxation. Holy Spirit fills the Holy of Holies. And... While still filling the Holy of Holies, he is dwelling with his people throughout uh, actual history, throughout redemptive history. Good. All right, we'll, we'll come back to that question. Those are all good answers. Um, what about the second question? What is different about the Holy Spirit between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Yes. The Holy, the Holy Spirit came upon certain people at certain times, whereas in the New Testament, every believer is involved with the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And so, not that he was limited in space or time in the Old Testament, but chooses to, uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, so in the Old Testament, the, the Holy Spirit was not given to every believer in the same way that he is given to every believer now, um, what, what kinds of people, what groups of people uh, receive the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Prophets. Prophets, good. And what did prophets do? Prophesied. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Prophesied. Good. And what is prophecy? Yeah. It is a convicting of the sins of the people uh, mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that's that's one part of Yeah, yes. That's that's one part of prophecy. Just more, more generally, prophecy is a, a revelation of, of God, right? So the Holy Spirit was given to prophets to reveal the will of God, to reveal the word of God. What other kinds of people receive the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Judges. Judges, yeah. And Yep. Good. I'm thinking of three groups of people. Prophets is one. Priests and kings, right? Priests and kings. Okay. So what is uh, what was the function of priests in the Old Testament? Before. Before God, right? So representative of the people before the Lord. Um, and what was the function of kings in the Old Testament? To rule. To rule. Yeah, to rule the people. Okay? And we know prophet, priest, and king. How does that apply to what we're talking about this morning? Christ's offices. Yeah, the three offices of Christ, right? Christ is the prophet, the priest, the king. Okay? Um, how were people given the Holy Spirit? 
There's an external sign that represents the giving of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. What is that? Pouring. Of. Pouring of. Yeah. Hmm? No. Oil. Oil, yeah. And, and what's that called? Anointing. Okay, so prophets, priests, and kings were anointed with oil. Um, the, the, the oil and the beard of Aaron, right? So uh, these three offices were anointed with oil to represent the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk about anointing in a little bit. Okay, good. So there is... Um, there is a, a more general giving of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. But what is different about the Holy Spirit himself between the Old Testament and the New Testament? I think there's a much more... His, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is, is a much more physical entity in, okay. in many ways mm-hmm. uh, than in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. He actually, the, the Holy Spirit actually came and indwelled with the people in the tabernacle, mm-hmm. the holy seat, mm-hmm. you don't see that in the New Testament. That's, that's just one aspect. Okay, good. That reminds me of Hebrews. Let me see if I can find it. Um, you would not come to an earthly mountain. Uh, you guys know that, right? You come to the. I'm not going to find it off the top of my head, but. Um, yeah, so there's there's more physical things in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we worship by spirit and truth. Good. But what about the Holy Spirit himself? Not how he's revealed, not how he's given. What's different about the Holy Spirit himself? This is a little bit of a trick question. There is no difference. Yeah, there's no difference, right? Because if there was a difference, then what would that mean about God? That he changes, that he would be he would be mutable, right, changeable, and that is not the case. So it's the same Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. It's the same Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Good. Okay, moving to uh, a review of last week. <clears throat> what works of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament pointed forward to Christ? Please. What works of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament pointed forward to Christ? I would say all of them. Yeah. The Old Testament, the entire whole Old Testament. trick questions. <laughs> the entire whole Old Testament is is a foreshadowing of Christ coming mm-hmm. and, and, the, and the constant redemption of Israel and the kings and the judges and all of it is 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 a is a Final consummated in Christ. Yes. Uh, one sacrifice, one for all. Mm-hmm. Last time. Yeah. So. Yes, that's a good answer. I, I do like trick questions. So. <laughs> yes. But I would like to change my answer to question one A. Okay. That there are no more important. They're all equally important. All equally important. Yeah, that's a good trick. I thought about that's that earlier, but I was like, I don't think he's trying to trick us. You could probably assume that most. No. He said we have for some blasphemy. No. Um, that's also a good answer, though. I thought your first answer was good too. But okay. Um, so yeah, the the entire Old Testament points forward to Christ, certainly. Um, specifically, uh, Revelation, right? So Old Testament scriptures, the, the revelation given to the prophets points forward to Christ. What are some Old Testament revelations that point forward to Christ? Specifically, yes, all of them, but specifically. <laughs> what? Jonah. Okay, how does Jonah point forward to Christ? Uh, the burial for three days and mm-hmm. bringing him to life. Okay. I'm not sure if Jonah understood the revelation at the time that was so I don't know if that's a good one. Well, that's a good point. Um, did so? I'm thinking about Isaiah. Um, but but we'll, we'll we'll talk about Jonah. So I, Isaiah, there's uh, 
Isaiah 53, right? The suffering servant. He's, he's speaking about Christ. Does he necessarily understand everything that he's speaking about when he... Does he understand the full import of what he's saying? Psalm 22. Okay. Psalm 22, yeah. I don't okay, think he understood either. Yeah, probably not. Um, there's a an analogy uh, that B.B. Warfield gives about uh, if you're in a dark room, right, you can and it's completely dark, you can kind of feel your way around and kind of get a sense of what's in the room. And then all of a sudden the lights flash on for a second and then go off again, and you see a little bit of what's in the room. But you don't comprehend the whole room. And then eventually the lights come on and you can see everything in the room. And you understand that the room hasn't changed, right? It's all the same stuff. That's uh, an analogy uh, of Revelation in the Old Testament pointing forward to Christ. You get these flashes, like Isaiah, the, the, the prophets who reveal things about Christ uh, to come, but you don't get the full picture until Christ comes, and then we have the full picture. Um, we already talked about the uh, people in the Old Testament were anointed by oil, and that anointing by oil pointed towards the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to move to, to three now. The relationship between the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit. What is the meaning of the title Christ? Anointed. Anointed, right. Yeah. Messiah, anointed one. Uh, what does that mean for our Christology and our pneumatology? I should say, just a little um, caveat, this is primarily about the Holy Spirit, but we will talk a lot about Christ, obviously, because it's the relationship between the second and third persons of the Trinity. So, what does Jesus' title means anointed one? What does that mean for our Christology and for our pneumatology or doctrine of the Holy Spirit? Say that again. I'm sorry. I was trying to follow that. So Christ means anointed one. Yes. Anointed by what? Or whom? He was anointed by the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit descended when he was baptized like a dove. And God said, you know. Yes. Well, my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. Okay. So that, that Christ's title means anointed by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean for our Christology, our doctrine of the person of Christ, and our doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We see them play with that type. God is saying, you know, this is good. The Spirit descended upon him, and Christ was receiving the anointment, which actually came from God, too, because the Spirit proceeds both from the Son and the Father. Yes. And so, it's a great uh, trying moment. Uh, is this the second Yes, ma'am. Oh, <laughs> come on. Man. Yeah, so uh, we'll we'll talk more specifically about baptism in a little bit. Um, but Christ Jesus's title means anointed with the Holy Spirit. So there is a very close relationship between the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, and and that relationship lasts uh, it. It lasts his whole life, right? And, and, and we'll talk about it a little bit, uh, in a little bit. Um, when, no, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, Christ is the anointed one, anointed by the Holy Spirit. So I have three passages here that, that talk about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So turn to Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. <coughs> Can I get someone to read that for me, please? Yes. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay. Thank you. So, this is Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry. He is teaching in the synagogue. And what does he say? He is the anointed. He is the anointed one, right? The anointed right. one of God. Yeah, he's saying this... This prophecy that Isaiah spoke is fulfilled in me. And like you said, he, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He's saying, I am filled with the Spirit of the Lord and I am anointed with the Spirit of the Lord. So, <clears throat> how, do the people, how do the people react to this? We didn't read it, but what's the reaction? Well, verse 22 says, They all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Yes. So initially, there is a positive reaction. In verse 28 and 29, right? They're trying to throw him off a cliff. Um, And why is that their reaction? Why are they trying to kill Jesus? What is Jesus doing when he says, this day, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing? He's fulfilling God's word. So he's saying he's the Messiah. Yeah. So therefore he's saying, I am God. Yes. And in the flesh. And, you know, not even the Pharisees want to believe that. As right. Without crucifying. Right. In the, in the high school, Sunday school class, we're going through the Gospel of John. And... There's all these I am statements of Jesus, right? I am this, I am that. Um, And the reason, like, we've been talking a lot about there's this idea that that Jesus is just like a nice guy. He's just a a good teacher. Um, But if you look at the response of people in Jesus' day to what he said and did, it indicates that they did not think that Jesus was just a nice guy. They thought he was... Uh, the worst heretic imaginable because when he says today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing he's not he, he's making himself equal with God right so you cannot say there's that the C.S. Lewis quote he's either a liar lord or lunatic right you can't there's no fourth option where he's just a nice guy he's a good teacher and you should kind of try to follow his, his social uh, precepts or whatever so Jesus, and, and, and the thing that in this passage makes them so upset is that, he, is that he's saying that he has the Holy Spirit. Uh, he, he has been anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond all else. Let's turn to, to John chapter 3. What's going on in John chapter 3? Nicodemus Nicodemus and stuff. Yeah, so Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. This is after that. Uh, John the Baptist is exalting Christ. And then there's a section here from 31 to 36. I guess there's some discussion, debate about whether this is John the Baptist speaking or John the Apostle speaking. But verse 34 says, For he whom God has sent utters the word of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. There's this quote here. Uh, Francis Turretin noted that Christ's reception of the Spirit in his humanity is not simply infinite, for his humanity is finite in itself, but it is a fullness of abundance, which suffices not only for himself, but for others also, so that we we all can drink of his fullness. 
Christ is given the Spirit without measure. Christ gives the Spirit without measure. Christ is able to give us the Spirit because why? How is Christ able to give his brothers and sisters the Spirit? Well, he's giving of himself. You know, trying to God, he is, while they are separate personages of God, they are one. Yes. Yeah, I would. The Spirit doesn't do his will, they are one. So giving of himself, basically, the Spirit. I would be careful with saying giving of himself, yeah. meaning the Spirit, because that might lead to a confusion of the persons. But mm-hmm. but yes, he, he has, like like Turchin says here, is a fullness of abundance. Mm-hmm. He has what he needs, and he has enough to give to all of us. Remember that the Spirit is also called the Spirit of Christ. Yes. That's another way he would be able to give the Spirit because mm-hmm. the Spirit is of Christ. Yes. And then Psalm 45, verse 7. This is a, a, a love song to the King. I'll just read that for you. Uh, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is a very Trinitarian verse, right? Uh, he's speaking to the king. He, he may have written this for an earthly king, but ultimately he's writing it about the king, Jesus. Uh, and so the father anoints the king with the oil of gladness, and we've already talked about how anointing with oil is pointed to, pointing to anointing with the Holy Spirit. And he has the oil of gladness beyond, beyond measure, right? Beyond anyone else. And there's this, this paraphrase by John Flavel, uh, God enriched and filled thee in a singular and peculiar manner with the fullness of the Spirit, whereby thou art consecrated to thy office, and by reason whereof thou outshinest and excellest all the saints who are thy fellows or co-partners in these graces. So that's a little bit about the relationship between Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Um, <clears throat> But I'll also say, Paul picks this up in the New Testament. He says that this passage of Scripture applies to Christ. So mm-hmm. we don't need to do any kind of guesswork. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Mm-hmm. He says it. Yes. Good. Yeah. This is not speculation. If Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, and thus God himself, which hopefully we would all agree with that, how can we say that he was given the Holy Spirit? the term we use to, to describe the, the two natures of Christ? Hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. Good. It's right there. Um, although I'll, I'll assume that you knew it before. Um, so the hypostatic union, what does that mean? Can you give me a quick definition of the hypostatic union? There's 
Two natures. All you need. Yes. Two natures, not two different persons. Yes. In what? In Christ. In Christ, okay. And what are those two natures? Uh, man and God. Yeah, God and man. Um, how does that apply to the anointing of the Holy Spirit? How does the hypostatic union, or, or how does the anointing of the Holy Spirit, what do those two things have to do with each other? Anointing with the Holy Spirit and the hypostatic union. Which, so, so there's two natures in Christ, God, fully God, fully man. There's no mixture, there's no percentage, right? It's two 100%, 100% God, 100% man. In which nature was Christ anointed with the Holy Spirit? Is the Son of God? Yes, the Son of God, but it, yeah, in, in his human nature, right? And we'll, we're going to get into the, the incarnation. Um, yeah, we'll just, we'll go there now. So, how was Christ incarnated? Yes. Yeah. Uh, what, what do we call the, the, the birth of Christ? I mean, the virgin we, we, birth. The virgin birth, right. Um, so, someone explain to me, just a brief synopsis, what is the virgin birth? What went on there? Well, Mary got, oh, sorry, got impregnated with the, um, I guess you can't say the Holy Spirit, but she got impregnated without actual relations, mm -hmm. and um, the baby she was carrying, um, an angel appeared to her and said that she would be carrying the Messiah, wasn't mm -hmm. Yeah, so Mary conceives, bears uh, the Lord Jesus without human intervention, right? There's no uh, physical, sexual relation. There, call that ordinary generation, right? Christ is not ordinarily generated like we all were ordinarily generated. Um, let's turn to, to Luke 1, verse 35. <clears throat> so this is, this is the angel speaking to Mary, Angel says, uh, "You have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High." And Mary says, "How is that going to work? I'm a virgin, right?" Mary is confused by this because she is thinking of ordinary generation. And the angel, this is verse thirty-five. The angel answered her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So there's a couple things here that I want to talk about. Um, uh, first, in C.I. 1. Sorry, that's very confusing. Uh, there's a quote from Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 2. I'm just going to read it because it, it speaks a little bit about this confusion. You know, what do you say? The Holy Spirit impregnate. I'm just going to read it. it. Hopefully it'll clear up some of the confusion. It is fitting that the Holy Spirit acted as the efficient cause in forming Christ's human nature. For the Father anointed Jesus as the reservoir of all the graces of the Spirit to men. This does not make the Holy Spirit the Father of Jesus. For Christ's conception took place not of the Spirit's substance, or by his generation, but by the Spirit's power and activity. So, it's the power and activity of the Spirit that conceives the Lord Jesus, not his substance. It's not like a spiritual version of physical generation, right? So, in this verse, uh, the angel says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. What does that make you think of? Anointing. Yes. Good. Um, 
So, yeah, anointing. It, it also, it makes me think of uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is Jesus uh, speaking to the disciples before he ascends into heaven. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And what is Jesus speaking about there when he's telling the disciples that the Holy Spirit will come upon them? Pentecost. Pentecost, right. The giving of the Holy Spirit. And what does, uh, the, the angel also says, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. What does that make you think of? Makes me think of the spirit hovering over the waters. Yes. Creation. Creation. Why do you think? So, so the spirit hovers over the face of the waters in creation. The spirit is hovering over Mary to uh, conceive the Lord Jesus. What's the connection there? Creation of new life. We could also call that recreation, right? So we think about the the stages of uh, redemptive history. There's creation. What follows creation? The fall, right? There's the fall into sin. Then there is what comes after the fall. Redemption, yeah, redemption, glorification. Glorification could also call recreation. So the Holy Spirit here hovering over Mary is beginning the work of recreation, right? Because by the birth, life, death, resurrection, and uh, session of the Lord Jesus, all things are made new, right? Um, the, the, the question to consider, the first question to consider, what's the most important work of the Holy Spirit? Um, not exactly, not entirely a, a trick question. Um, but this, Sinclair Ferguson makes the point that the, the works of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Lord Jesus are his most important works because without the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, in his birth, life, death, resurrection, and glorification, we would not be able to participate in recreation, right? Um, so it's only because the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus were so closely connected during his life and earthly ministry that we are able to participate, we are able to be in union with Christ and be recreated with him. So um, let's talk about the significance of the virgin birth. So I have this question here. Is the Holy Spirit by whose power and activity the Lord Jesus was conceived the same Holy Spirit that dwells within each believer? Yes. Right. Why? Or or, or why is that important to you? For better understanding of the Word. Okay, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the Spirit gives illumination. So we're able to understand the word. Yes? I think it helps us as believers to realize that the Lord never changes. Mm-hmm. So it gives us that security in our salvation and then what he said was true. And it also points to his sovereignty. Yeah, definitely. Um, if you think if you think about the power of the Holy Spirit to create the human body of the Lord Jesus is the same spirit that dwells within you, has the same power, has the same attributes, that is, that should be a comfort to you, right? Um, Okay, we're going to move to the um, Holy Spirit in Jesus' childhood. So let's turn to Luke 
chapter 2, 41 through 52. Can somebody read that for me, please? Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, he went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Okay, thank you. So Jesus is away from his parents for three days. can probably imagine if your child was missing for three days and you finally found them, you might ask a similar question as Mary did. Why are you doing this? Why are you treating us like this? We've been looking at you forever, for three days. And Jesus says, why are you looking for me? Didn't you know I would be here? Um, is, that a, is that an impertinent question? Is that an impertinent answer for Jesus to give to his mother's question? What might it mean if it were impertinent? Yes, right. Jesus is being disrespectful to his parents. What would that mean? Yes, sinning, right? So it can't be. It can't be that. Um, although Mary might have perceived it that way, uh, we know it could could not have been that. Why do you? Well, I'll just, I'll just say this. So, uh, Sinclair Ferguson says, he, he's speaking about this passage, and he says, uh, he thinks, um, well, he, he said this is a, this is a confusing, confusing passage for a lot of scholars, but uh, he says that the Lord Jesus answered in this way because his parents raised him in the nurture and admonition of the Lord to know that the temple is where you go to be in communion with God. And so, because one of the works of the Holy Spirit is to bring people into communion with God the Father, and because Jesus, the Lord Jesus, from his very conception, had this very close relationship with the Holy Spirit, and because his parents had taught him that going to the house of God is where you have communion with God, He's saying, you, you should have known that I would be here because you taught me that to be in communion with God, I come here. And so he's, he's not being disrespectful. He's not being uh, recalcitrant. But he is saying, you should have known because you were the ones that taught me. And um, I think that's a pretty, that's a pretty cool way of, of reading this. But verse 52 says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You can understand probably how Jesus increased in favor with man. How could Jesus have increased with, in favor with God? Active obedience. Okay. Yeah, explain that a little bit. Um, I'd rather pass it to a go. <laughs> 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 um, 
Jesus increased in favor with God mean that he did not have favor with God before. No. Right. Um, if you're married, you probably uh, know that when you got married, you loved that person. And you thought you loved that person as much as more than anyone else in the world. Right. And between that time and now, do you love your spouse more than you did then? Yes. Does that mean that you did not love them before? No, right? You've just, you're discovering new reasons to love that person. You can also think about a child, right? Um, you have a little tiny baby, you love that baby, even though it doesn't really do that much, right? <laughs> but as they grow up and uh, go through trials and mature in uh, in themselves, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, as you see them grow in Christ, you love them more. That doesn't mean that you didn't love them when they were a baby, right? You just have more reasons to love that child. <clears throat> I think we'll make it. Let's look at, we'll stay in Luke, um, turn over chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Uh, this is Luke's account of Jesus' baptism. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So what does that, what does that account reveal to us about who God is? says, you are my son, right? So yeah. father, son, and? Is the Holy Spirit here? Yes. Where is the Holy Spirit? The son is like a dove. Yeah, bodily form like a dove. So this is a very Trinitarian passage, right? The father is pronouncing his love for the son. The spirit is descending on the, on the son. So this is a triune passage. What does the dove make you think of? The ark. The ark. And what, uh, what's significant about Noah in redemptive history? Think about Noah. What, what did his name mean? He conquered. Okay. He, he rest. Noach. Rest. Noach. Good. Uh, rest. Why did, his, why did Noah's father name him Noah? they thought this would be the Christ, right? This is not that long in the grand scheme of things after Genesis 3.15, right? The prophecy is given that one day someone will come who will give people rest. And his father said, thought maybe this is the man who was prophesied and he will give us rest. That was not true, right? Noah was not the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Here we see the dove, again, descending, hovering over the true rest for his people. Jesus is the true fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 because he is the one who will give his people rest. Then there's this interesting thing. You think about where's the genealogy of Matthew uh, in the book of Matthew? That's right at the very beginning, right? That, that makes sense to us, right? He, hey, this is this is where he came from, 
and then this is who he, who he is, right? Um, Mark, uh, Luke does not do that. He puts it after the baptism of Jesus. And that might seem a little odd, um, but we know that Luke's genealogy traces the genealogy of Christ all the way back to Adam. And um, I think that is because this is, uh, again, the Lord Jesus' part in the work of recreation, right? At the first Adam, uh, messed it up for everybody. uh, Harry referenced this, he read this verse, this is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. It says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Christ is the, uh, Christ is undoing the damage that Adam did. And that's why I think uh, Luke puts the genealogy of, of Christ here. How does, how does the Holy Spirit work in recreation? So we're talking about this recreation. We know that Christ's life death, or life ministry, death, resurrection, glorification is the way in which we are able to participate in recreation. Yes? Yeah, I think that, and I used this last night, uh, the operations Christmas child, but, um, <clears throat> but I think when we talk about this peace, and the Holy Spirit is lying to peace, but Romans 5, um, 1 through 5, I'm just going to read it. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So I, I think that sums up in my mind you know, what the Spirit's doing and what, what, what these aspects of peace and what he brings to us um, through the actions of Christ and his sacrifice ultimately on the cross and his ascension and glorification. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, because the Holy Spirit was with the Lord Jesus from the instant of his conception through his ascension, and we'll talk a little bit about his ministry his death and his resurrection next week. Uh, But because of that, we are now enabled, because we also have the Holy Spirit, we are united to Christ. That's that's how, in the New Testament, believers are are spoken of most often, not not as Christians, but as those in Christ, or those united with Christ. Because the Holy Spirit dwells in the Holy of Holies. What was that word? Talking about the Holy Spirit dwelling in the heavenly temple. I said it earlier. Indoxation. Indoxation. And the the Holy Spirit dwells where Christ dwells and also dwells with us. We are taken up into the Holy of Holies. That's the the Reformed view of the Lord's Supper, right? Yes. I was going to say, like, uh, specifically regarding uh, the genealogy and stuff, the importance of the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary, that Jesus did not inherit Adam's Mm -hmm. sin nature as a second Adam. Yeah, definitely. So if if Christ was ordinarily generated, then um, there would always be this question like, well, did he inherit the sin nature? He couldn't really have been perfect. Maybe he could have obeyed, actively obeyed, but he would have had that sin nature, and so there would be a confusion. But because um, of the extraordinary generation of the Lord Jesus, we are not... Uh, we're not doubtful of that. Okay. If I could go back yes. to the baptism. So we mentioned the dove referring to uh, the, the ark, Noah's time. Uh, but even before that, you have that dove like figure, the spirit hovering over the waters of mm-hmm. creation. And here we have a baptism. Mm-hmm. So in, in creation, there are these chaotic waters. And baptism, one, one symbol of baptism is the chaotic waters, that is the waters of judgment that would wash over all those who are not in Christ. So here we have the Spirit in alien form hovering over uh, 
his baptistic waters in Christ, yeah. about to bring out redemption and recreation through union with him in baptism. It's good stuff. Yes. All right, very briefly, talk about Jesus' temptation. Um, I'm going to turn to Mark 1. This is a, a short account of the, the temptation of Christ, um, but we have a short amount of time. So uh, I'll read. It's, it's verse 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Uh, and I'll just, we don't have time to, for me to ask questions about it. I'll just tell you, it's uh, Sinclair Ferguson again. He, he makes the point that when we think about the baptism and the temptation of Jesus, the, question, the first question we ask should not be, how was Jesus' uh, experience similar to my own, but how was his experience unique? And some of the unique things about the temptation of Jesus is generally when we, when temptation comes to us, we, we flee from it, right? We're called to, to flee from it. We ask the Spirit not to lead us into temptation. Here we see the Spirit driving Jesus into the desert to face temptation. Um, this, I've been told, this word drove is extremely strong. It cast Jesus out, pushed him out into the wilderness to face temptation. And we've been talking about the relationship between the first Adam and the last Adam. Adam faced temptation in the garden. Uh, he was physically safe. He was spiritually in communion with God. He was surrounded by tame animals, right? Here we have the Lord Jesus having fasted for 40 days, physically weak. He is in communion with God because he has a spirit, right? But he's surrounded by wild animals. This is a very stark contrast to the first Adam's temptation, right? And the first Adam failed in idyllic uh, circumstances. The last Adam succeeds in these chaotic, this chaotic environment that is the result of the first Adam's failure. And so the, the Lord Jesus' temptation is unique because he succeeded in, in these extreme circumstances. This is not a call that we have to put ourselves in these extreme circumstances. We are not called to seek out temptation, to battle it. But because the Lord Jesus withstood temptation in these extreme circumstances, and it is the very same spirit that enabled him to succeed in those circumstances, dwells within us, we are, we are called to flee from temptation. And we, we know that that spirit, that the spirit is powerful enough to protect us from that temptation. Uh, by way of closing, I, I skipped this earlier. I'm just going to read John chapter 14 uh, to kind of get us ready for next week because we'll be talking about the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus next week. John 14, verse 16 and 17 says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And it's kind of interesting because we often think about the, the disciples pre-Pentecost as uh, not having the Holy Spirit. Which is true, right? They didn't have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. But Jesus says, <coughs> excuse me, uh, you know him, you know the Spirit. How did the disciples know the Spirit? They knew Jesus, right? Jesus, we've been talking about from the moment of his conception, all through his ministry, is filled with the Holy Spirit beyond measure. And the, the disciples, just like Jesus says, if you see me, you've seen the Father. If you see me and know me, you have seen the Spirit. And so we'll be talking about the, the work of Christ with the Holy Spirit in his ministry next week. Uh, can I have someone close us in prayer as we prepare for worship? Heavenly Father, we do come before you, Lord. Again, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy, Father. Uh, we don't deserve it, but yet you have given it to us in great measure. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit. We're thankful that you've given it to us in, in tremendous great amounts and measure in our indwelling within us. 
We pray, Father, that uh, you would now be with us as we transition to worship you, a holy God. Uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Convict our hearts uh, to know that uh, we don't, we do fall short of your glory. But yet, Father, you have redeemed us, and we're here to worship you, I'm your Lord, today. And we're just thankful for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.